0: As a young child he remembered being hoisted shoulder high to see a small man on a white horse go by. Napoleon, with his laurels still fresh, was riding through the highlands of Lombardy. The small boy was Carlo Bianconi, born in Tregolo, near Como in 1786. His father was comfortably off without being wealthy. He had a small property, a silk mill on his land, and he acted as land agent to the great Bononcina family. So Carlo was cared for and nurtured in comparative comfort. His childhood was uneventful, and his small world was a happy one. His formidable grandmother, a matriarch whose word was law, decided he should be a priest and sent him for instruction to his uncle Joshua, a reverend doctor who was provost of Asso. The plan was never likely to succeed. Carlo was quite uninterested in learning. And besides, he was in love with the local girl, Giovanna Vandroni. Giovanna, the daughter of a wealthy landowner who was away at the time, serving with the army, spent a lot of her time with the Bianconi girls, living with them virtually en famille. She and Carlo saw a lot of one another, and though they were only in their mid-teens, this was a love affair destined to have long-term effects, as you will hear. But at the time, the romance was destined to be snuffed out. Giovanna was already promised in marriage to the son of a noble family... But even had that not been so, Carlo wouldn't have been considered a suitable match for her. At that time, many of the artisans of the Como district used to emigrate to the British Isles. The more talented ones dealt in ornamental goods, the less successful wound up playing barrel organs. At 16, Carlo went to make his fortune to fulfil the ambition that he once expressed to own much land and many white horses. I was at this time... In
1: 1802, about fifteen or sixteen years old, a dunce, and a very wild boy. Yet I am sure I had the credit for being much worse than I really was. I cannot say whether it was my ill repute or the conscription that induced my father to send me abroad to sow my wild oats. I was, at any rate, bound to Andre Farroni, who was to bring me to England. If I did not like to become a dealer in prints, barometers, and spyglasses, at the expiration of eighteen months I was to be placed under the care of the late Mister Paolo Cognari, who was to make new arrangements with my father. Farroni received a large sum for my maintenance, but he saved my father and Mister Cognari all further trouble about me, for, instead of taking me to London, he brought me over to Ireland. This man had three other boys under his charge besides myself. One was Giuseppe Castelli, a son of the innkeeper in a town near Assol. The second was Gellarmo Camnari, the son of a master tailor at Como. The third was Giuseppe Rivaldi, a plain good lad, a year or two older than myself and the son of the honest flax dealer. My father had a great regard for Ribaldi, and prevailed on him to bind his son to Varoni. This boy was to have been a kind of brains carrier for me, being so much steadier than I was. As a reward for looking after me, he was to share all my advantages at the expiration of 18 months' apprenticeship. On the eve of my departure, my uncle, the Reverend Dr. Matza, gave an entertainment not at his new living in the mountains, but at the inn in Cosmo, where the boys were to meet our new taskmaster. Up to this time, I had been much elated at the prospect of escaping from school and of seeing the world. But when I saw my poor mother faint at the festive board, I began to realize that I was entering upon something very serious. During the few days that I had to spend at my father's house, She had tried to call my attention to my future life. But now, surrounded as I was by so many people, some whose faces were new to me, and others old friends of my father's, who stuffed my purse with Louis d'Or, I became so excited that no sooner was I separated from
0: my mother than I almost entirely forgot her. They set out on foot over the Alps, and little is known of their journey except that they bypassed their first destination, London, and arrived instead in Dublin. They lodged at Temple Bar near Essex Bridge, where they set to work making leaden frames for the cheap pictures they had brought with them from Italy, and then they took to the streets. I shall never forget
1: the ludicrous figure I caught in going into the streets with a pair of these things in my hand saying, Bye, bye, to every person I met and when questioned as to the price, I was unable to reply, except by counting on my fingers the numbers of pence I wanted.
0: Bianconi soon learnt a little English, and his master sent him off to the country with two pounds' worth of pictures and a weekly allowance of fourpence. When the apprentices had beaten all the country around Dublin, Bianconi and Camagni, the tailor's son, were ordered to Waterford and Wexford. Carlo spent the next 18 months in that area, absorbing the language and the customs and learning how to sell. Then his apprenticeship was over, and his master, in accordance with his contract, offered to bring him back to Italy. But Carlo still had no land and no white horses, so his pride wouldn't let him return. Instead, he set up for himself. I at once got a box made to contain
1: large framed prints, It was two feet long by one foot wide, and eighteen inches deep. This box I filled with an assortment of prints, from the largest to the smallest size. With this pack on my back, which weighed over a hundred pounds, I had frequently walked from twenty to thirty miles in the day. I was then seventeen years old, and I knew neither discouragement nor fatigue, for I felt that I had to set to work to become a great man, It was not long before I came to perceive the great differences between the peddler doomed to tramp on foot as I was and his more fortunate fellow who could post or ride on horseback. These thoughts were hovering about in my mind, along with the fixed idea that had become a ruling passion with me, how to become somebody. And this firm resolve enabled me to overcome the
0: discouragement and discontent ...that had previously oppressed me. In the course of his rambles through the country... ...Carlo met with great hospitality. Not alone did the strong middle-class families... ...entertain the handsome Italian peddler boy... ...but they recommended him to friends in distant parts. And it was in this way that he was introduced... ...to the Baldwin family in care... ...and they became almost his second parents. Another friend of this time... ...was the reverend mother of the Ursuline convent in Thurless... ...Mrs Tobin so-called because of the penal statutes which outlawed ecclesiastical forms of address. In later years, he was to admit that while he was not afraid of God Almighty, he was terrified of Mrs Tobin. She used to call him Charles in the Irish way, and it was at this time that he dropped the Italian form of his Christian name and became Charles. Another friend he first met at this time was Father Theobald Mathew. He came on the scene providentially when Charles was getting the worst of a street fight and rescued him. Toby, as Charles called him, became his lifelong friend. Staying with the Baldwins was their niece, Julia Burke, and she was destined to figure largely in Bianconi's life. She bore a striking resemblance to the beloved Giovanna, who had been left behind in Italy. She and Charles took to one another instantly, and it was she who was instrumental in getting him to stop being a peddler and to set up as a carver and gilder instead. When her visit to the Baldwins ended and she was returning to her home in Carrick, Charles decided to go too, and there he set up a small shop, but since he was not very skilled as a craftsman, it didn't prosper much. Often while tramping the monster roads, he had envied those who rode or drove. Now he began to see how badly business was affected by the lack of public transport. I supplied my Carrick shop with gold
1: leaf from Waterford going down in Tom Morrissey's boat to buy it. Carrick on shore is 12 or 13 miles from Waterford by land, but the winding of the river make it 24 by water. This boat was then the only public conveyance. The time of its departure had to depend upon the tide, and it took from four to five
0: hours to make the journey. One such rain-sodden trip resulted in pleurisy. And when he had recovered, he decided to move again, this time to Waterford, where he took private lodgings and sent out his advertising cards. Charles
2: Bianconi, gilder and printseller, looking-glass and picture-frame manufacturer at Mr Prendergast's opposite the Royal Oak, George Street, Waterford, informs all ladies and gentlemen that he executes all kinds of gilding in oil and burnished gold, equal to any other person in this country and on moderate terms. He frames and blazes portraits, pictures, prints, drawings and looking-glasses in the newest style and on the shortest notice. N.B., country commands by a line, postpaid, directed as above, will be punctually attended to.
0: He spent two years in Waterford, working hard at his trade and improving his mind under the direction of another great friend, Edmund Rice, the founder of the Christian Brothers. Rice was to prove a most powerful influence on his whole life. Then, at 22, he felt the urge to move yet again, and having already tried four of the five principal towns on the River shore. Thurless, Cashel, Carrick, and Waterford, he now decided on the fifth, Clonmel. The first premises he took there weren't suitable, but then he paid quite a lot of money to take the corner shop, and this was the start of the upswing in his fortunes. He needed to attract attention, so he ordered from Ribaldi, a fellow apprentice who was now a successful businessman in London, a very large gilded mirror. The effect of this in the window of the corner shop was sensational. Horses shied away from their reflection, an old countrywoman fainted, but everyone noticed and customers came. Bianconi was a difficult name for them to remember, so to the locals he became Brian Cooney, or Brian of the Corner, a play on the Irish meaning of the word. Success led to success, and he soon was commissioned to collect golden guineas for the use of the government in their continental wars. The people used to hoard the guineas, and Charles would pay as much as 28 silver shillings to acquire them. He then passed them on to Dublin at a substantial profit. He was becoming a man of consequence, and he was increasingly irked by the penal laws which held the Catholics down. He had his own way of dealing with them, as in the local library. In the house, numbered 112
1: Main Street, was the newsroom, which I joined. "'I was greatly struck by the loud and consequential talk "'constantly going on between a Mr. Jepson and a Sir Richard Jones, "'and two more of their set, "'whereas I and my fellow papists were not allowed to speak above a whisper. "'This I resolved not to submit to, "'for I could see no reason why, "'when I had paid my money in a public place, "'I should not share all equal rights. "'Others followed my example.' and as we all, Protestants and Papists, indulged in equally noisy declamation, a stranger entering our newsroom would have been puzzled to say which party were the privileged administrators
0: of the penal code. At this time, Bianconi, with his newfound affluence, had a smart yellow gig, but he never forgot the hardships of walking, and the idea began to germinate of starting a cheap form of mass transport. Professor Kevin B. Nolan fills in the picture of what travel was like at that time.
3: Time in the early 19th century may not have been as valuable as we claim it is in the middle of the 20th, but nonetheless time was still an important consideration. And Bianconi on one occasion made the, I think, very important observation that a farmer living 20 or 30 miles from his market town spent the first day in going there a second day in doing his business and a third day in returning. Now the cynic might say that the farmer could be tempted to perhaps uh, stay longer in the market town for reasons other than transportation, but even allowing for conviviality, there is still a point in Bianconi's uh, description of travelling conditions. Without horses then, travel was slow and time-consuming. The other important factor to remember is that travel was expensive in the 19th century. Now, we're apt to complain, and I suppose rightly nowadays, of the cost of travel. It's constantly rising. But in the 19th century, before the age of the railways, and of course the railways brought with them an enormous revolution in social terms in the context of travel, before the railways, the cost was very, very high. In 1824, for example, it cost eight and fourpence to travel inside a cramped and uncomfortable coach on the journey from Dublin to Carlo, And if you are prepared to risk your life and limb perched on the roof of the coach, it costs you five shillings. Now, these charges have to be seen in the context of earnings at the period. A farm labourer would be very fortunate indeed In 1824 or 25, if he earned a shilling a day, more probably he earned less. So that an ordinary working man's week's pay would go in conveying him from Carlo to Dublin. So the real cost of travel was terribly high. It's easily accounted for. Horses were expensive, they had to be fed, a great deal of manpower was involved and the units of transportation were very small, the coach or, for that matter, the sidecar. Biancone's, I think, contribution was to realise that in this area the market possibilities were very considerable. Now, how was he going to go about meeting that market demand? Now, it would be foolish to assume that the kind of service which he was going to offer, did offer, was going to revolutionise the transportation of the very poor. It didn't. The poor man still had to walk. But there was a wide range of people who had to be catered for. So I come back to the two basic factors. One, the need for cross-country lines of transport. And secondly, the need to move away from a totally Dublin-orientated transport and to provide both at a
0: reasonable price. Bianconi decided to get into the travel business. He agreed with the postmaster at Caire to carry his cross-mails for him, and on the 6th of July, 1815, the first Bianconi car took the road from Clonmel to Caire. Caire was chosen because one horse could do the round trip at about seven and a half miles an hour. The customers didn't come, They didn't know what to make of the new idea, so they stayed away. And who would pay tuppence a mile when he could walk for nothing? Then Charles showed the flash of brilliance which turned failure into triumph. He secretly bought a second car and gave £20 for a yellow horse, and he set these up in opposition to his own mail car on the care run. Where parsimony had prevailed before, the sporting instincts of the public were now aroused, and as the cars raced one another along the valley of the shore, excitement rose, bets were struck, and passengers suddenly materialised for both cars. The rivalry ended when Bianconi's first driver, still unaware of the ownership of the second car, reported one evening with great pride...
2: You know the big yellow horse under the opposition car? Well, sir, he'll never run another yard. I'm after breaking his heart this night. I raced him in from beyond moors of barn, and he'll never travel again.
0: But the contest had served its purpose, and the Bianconi coach had come to stay. Gradually, the new route spread out over County Tipperary and beyond, and people marvelled that a foreigner with a poor background could initiate and control such an enterprise. Colonel S.J. Watson is one of Bianconi's biographers,
4: Bianconi, I think, has not been very accurately portrayed, if you think of him as an impoverished peddler boy who suddenly developed a flair for business. His family were, I suppose you describe them as middle-class professionals in Italy, um, He himself had been brought up, I think, in business-like, in a business-like atmosphere. He understood accounts because his father was a land agent, and going around with his father, he must have absorbed the principles of elementary finance, bookkeeping. But at the same time, what interests me is his actual character, which is... Fairly elusive, he was a very complex character. But he must have been an attractive character, an outgoing personality, a cheerful personality. He obviously inspired loyalty, but at the same time he had the essential worth, which retained that loyalty.
0: So the empire of this cheerful, attractive character spread.
3: Speaking to the British Association for the Advancement of Science in 1843, Bianchini was able to say, or was able to boast, that I now have cars running from Longford to Ballina and Belmullet, from Athlone to Galway and Clifton, from Limerick to Tralee and Cahersiveen. In 1845, the Bayans, as they were called, covered some 3,260 miles per day. In other words, the service was now spreading out from the southeast to give a network of services over a very large part of the island. Now, his rates were very competitive and attractive. The fare per mile could be as little as a penny halfpenny, though it was often, of course, higher. And one of the impressive things about the service and noted by travellers was that the estimated average speed of a bayan was between 8 and 9 miles per hour, which is quite fast considering the conditions at the time.
0: A retired Bianconi agent remembered his first introduction to Holmes Hotel.
2: At the back of the hotel and office was a large yard. On the right was the harness room where five men were busily working. Higher up there were three forges with eight smiths, all of them busy with their irons. On the left was the timber shop where a foreman and his wheelwrights were engaged. Above that were the hospital stables capable of holding 16 horses. And in a loft over the stable and timber shop, two men were always at work making new cars and another one painting them. Mr Quirk, a good and kind man, superintended this department. I was next brought to a square yard on the other side of the street where 40 horses stood in charge of eight grooms and I afterwards learned that all these horses went out every day and others came back in their places. Cars drawn by three and coaches drawn by four horses came in and went out so fast that for days I was bewildered and didn't know what to think.
0: Another man who was a little bewildered was an eminent passenger, William Makepeace Thackeray.
1: I made the journey upon one of the famous B & Kearney cars. Very comfortable conveyances too... If the booking office would only receive as many persons as the car would hold. For half an hour before the car left for Killarney, I observed people had taken their seats, and let all travellers be cautious to do likewise, lest, although they have booked their places, they be requested to mount on the roof and accommodate themselves on a bandbox, or a pleasant deal trunk with a knotted rope to prevent it being slippery, while the corner of another box jolts against your ribs for the journey. I had put my coat on a place and was just stepping to it when a lovely lady with great activity jumped up and pushed the coat onto the roof and not only occupied my seat but insisted that her husband should have the one next to her. So there was nothing for it but to make a huge shouting with the bookkeeper and call instantly for the taking down of my luggage and vow, my great gods, that I should take a post-chase and make the office pay, upon which, I am ashamed to say, some other person was made to give up a decently comfortable seat on the roof which I occupied, the former occupant hanging on, heaven knows how or where. A company of young squires were on the coach and they talked of horse racing and hunting punctually for three hours, during which time, I do believe, they did not utter one single word upon
0: any other subject. The Bayans brought colour to the countryside. The coachmen, full of skill and self-importance. The highly individual horses, like the totally blind one which led one team. The nimble Ostlers, some of whom could vault over two full-grown horses. And watching every detail was Bianconi, ordering his Ostlers' wives not to keep hens lest their husband should steal corn. Planting spies on his own cars, scanning every single waybill yet generous too, paying full wages to sick or injured employees. And he was no male chauvinist. He hired women just as readily as men.
5: The women were generally the wives or daughters of deceased agents. My father was not at all averse to allow women to occupy these posts. He piqued himself upon his power of reading faces, and he occasionally chose a woman in preference to a man. He was not moved by a pretty face or by any softness on the woman's part, for in general he was very indifferent to female charms. But he made his choice where he perceived a general air of intelligence and tact. At one time he had as many as 20 female agents.
0: Well, his daughter may have thought him impervious to female charms, but his close ties with Julia Burke continued, although she refused seven proposals of marriage from him. But Bianconi was now forty and felt it his duty to marry. Elizabeth Hayes, the daughter of a Dublin stockbroker, became his bride, and on their return to Clonmel, their coach was met outside the town by the bayans the horses taken from the shafts, and they were drawn through the streets to the sound of the special song of welcome written in their honour.
2: Now welcome, lovely lady, to this country by the shore. Where fine man started going, the buy that will endure. Tis we are proud to greet ye, and we hope ye are the same. For before the God Almighty, you're a great and lovely dame. And now to you, your honour, sir, we sing our song as well To wish you years of plenty in this grand and lovely dell To tell ye that we'll always take our horses to the end And may meet but happy days round every single bend
0: Shortly after his marriage, Charles's father died and he had to go to Italy. There he was generous to his family, and he had not forgotten his childhood sweetheart. Giovanna was now a duchess, and she and Charles renewed old acquaintance, with curious results that will become apparent later. About this time, the Bianconis moved to Silver Springs, a fine house outside Clonmel, which had been a charter school. By the terms of the lease, Mass could not be said under its roof. So Charles had the roof removed and another one built, and then he had Mass said. There were many influential friends at this stage. Lord Toncurry, Thomas Drummond, the brilliant under-secretary, the man who made the famous observation that property has its duties as well as its rights, and, of course, Daniel O'Connell. He had known O'Connell for years and each recognised the worth of the other and a great bond existed between them. Bianconi thought repeal was inadvisable and O'Connell berated him in a letter. Merrion
2: Square, 24th of March 1843. My dear friend, what the deuce is Tipperary doing? What the double deuce is Clonmel doing? And especially what is its valiant corporation doing? Sligo, Drogheda, Limerick, Cork, Waterford, Dublin, all the liberal corporations except Clonmel have either given proofs of Irish patriotism or else have shown themselves alive to it. What is Charles Bianconi doing? A vivacious animal in himself, but now seemingly as torpid as a flea in a wet blanket. So much for scolding you all. Now, my good friend, is it not a crying shame that your noble county should remain in such apathy and torpor when all the rest of Ireland is rousing itself into a combined effort for the repeal? I want a repeal meeting either at Clonmel or Cashel or Thurlis. I want to see from 60,000 to 100,000 Tipperary men meeting peacefully and returning home quietly to adopt the petition and to organise their appeal rent. Now you know you must get into motion. There's no use at all in hanging back any longer when you set about it. I know you will do the thing right well. I am to be at Rathkeel on Tuesday the 18th of April and I could be at either of the three towns I have mentioned upon Thursday the 20th of April. So now... Put these things together and set about working. Do nothing without the cooperation of the clergy. I need give you no further advice or instructions. Though you are a foreigner, you have brains in your noddle and are able to perceive, even amidst the levity of my phrases, the intensity of my anxiety to bring forward Tipperary speedily and energetically, but peaceably. What will you do for the cause? You should answer me that. With sincerest regards to your family, believe me always... Yours most
0: faithfully, Daniel O'Connell. Bianconi did work for the cause, though he didn't believe in it. As he said later, any man would have followed Dan when he was right. It's my boast to have followed him, right or wrong. He also straightened out the Liberators' tangled finances and backed him in establishing the National Bank. The advent of the railways was seen as a disaster by coaching companies, and they naturally resisted it. Not so Bianconi, who stood up at a meeting and told them...
1: I think I know as much of the country as any gentleman in this room. And I look upon it to be as foolish to try to prevent the establishment of railways as to try to stem the Liffey. My own loss by the establishment of the railways would be greater than that of any gentleman here present. I may say greater than the combined losses of all the gentlemen here present. Still, I see that railways must be made. And I not only do not oppose them, but I have taken shares in the
0: undertaking. Instead of opposing the railways, he moved his services to supplement them with feeder lines, to such effect that a few years later, reading a paper to a learned society, he could say... Notwithstanding the result of the extension
1: of railways, I still have over 900 horses working 35 two-wheeled cars travelling daily 1,752 miles. 22 four-wheeled cars travelling daily 1,500 miles. Ten coaches travelling daily 992 miles making in the whole 67 conveyances travelling daily 4,244
0: miles and extending over portions of 22 counties. In 1844, four b m Coney, the former peddler who lived on fourpence a week, became mayor of Clonmel. He wrote to Dan O'Connell for advice on what legal books he would need to study. He had a reply. My dear mayor...
2: If you wish to discharge the duties of mayorty with perfect satisfaction, act upon your own sound common sense and do not look into any law books.
0: Faithfully yours, Daniel O'Connell. He took the advice and as a magistrate he was noted for putting down dishonesty and drunkenness. In his young days travelling the Tipperary roads, Bianconi had seen a house which he vowed he would one day own. On that occasion, he had been kicked down the steps for daring to knock at the front door. Now it became available in rather unfortunate circumstances. The present occupant of Longfield, Kevin Byrne, tells the story.
6: The Longs lived here uh, relatively quietly until in the middle of the 19th century, in about 1843. uh, The Long who lived here then, Captain Long's son, was shot by uh, a member of the White Boys or similar organisation... Uh, he was shot, in fact, on the outside lavatory, that being the only place that wasn't properly defended. The house was sold then with 2,000 acres of land and was purchased by Charles Bianconi. Uh, Bianconi paid £22,000, which was quite a reasonable price, uh, but there was a land dispute at the time, which meant that there wasn't much demand. He, uh, this was his first major purchase of an estate. Prior to that, his... Uh, Lack of Irish or British citizenship had prevented him from buying land. And uh, when he came here, he had the advantage of, first of all, having a great deal of capital, which he'd never been able to invest before, and secondly, having the friendship of Mr Murphy, who had the adjoining estate. During the famine years which followed afterwards, he was able to be of great help to people in the community. He paid pre-famine wages right through the famine, and on the home farm of about 350 acres. During the famine years, he was able to employ as many as 300 men at one time. He imported polenta and uh, other products from abroad and even at one stage brought across a French chef to teach local people how to cook uh, some of these uh, potato substitutes. In time, Longfield recovered from the horrors of the famine
0: and the family were happy there. Charles lavished money on the place, kept a large staff and entertained on a princely scale. His great-granddaughters, the Misses Ryan, remember the big house.
7: It was very lovely and of course very well um, equipped in every way and lots of maids there to run about and do things and of course there was the butler and of course the great thing to do was to be very chummy with the butler (laughs) he sort of took it for a walk down the garden and he reached the plum that you couldn't reach (laughs) and And things like
5: that. Imagine apricots used to be grown there and of course they had planted it so as it would remind him of Italy you know, the trees and that These sort of trees thing. Yes, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And uh, the, uh, I, my, my recollections of it were going there very, very small, child. I think I must have been about four, and being mesmerised by the said butler because he held my saucer when I was drinking my tea, <laughs> much to my alarm.
0: <laughs> Two generations before the Mrs Ryan, the nursery had been occupied by Charles's children. His son, Charlie, was utterly spoiled and died quite young. He died, in fact, in Hollyhead, and it's rumoured that his body had to be sent back to Ireland in a piano or it would have been seized to meet his debts in England. He had married Daniel O'Connell's granddaughter, and the ties between the two families were further reinforced by the fact that his sister Minnie married the Liberator's nephew, Morgan John O'Connell. The other sister was Kate, and she was now consumptive as a result of working to exhaustion during famine days to help the people. She had run a soup kitchen in the cellars of Longfield. Bianconi decided that the Italian climate would do her good, and he set out with the whole family and three coaches, with his own horses and servants, in 1851. They travelled through Rome, where Charlie was made a papal chamberlain, and where Bianconi commissioned a monument to house the heart of Dan O'Connell and eventually they came to the Como district. And here something curious happened. Kate, whose life would obviously be short because of her consumption, fell instantly and madly in love with the son of the Duchess Giovanna Bianconi's childhood sweetheart. The biographies simply say that nothing came of the affair, but Colonel Watson, one of the biographers, added a footnote when I asked him.
4: The son of Giovanna developed an extraordinary affection for Bianconi, spontaneously. And everyone wondered why on earth couldn't they marry to give Catherine Bianconi just a few years of happiness before she died. And yet the people that were absolutely set against it were Giovanna and Bianconi. And if one works out the dates, there is a very strong probability that, in fact, Giovanna's son was also Bianconi's. And that is would explain why there was this tremendous opposition. You see, Bianconi's wife was in favour of it. And for some reason that was never explained, Bianconi and Giovanna uh, set their faces against it and said, this will not occur. And it was very tragic because... Um, Catherine Bianconi died of tuberculosis, and when she died, um, a young man went into a monastery and spent the rest of his life there.
0: Bianconi, on his return from Italy, devoted himself more and more to charitable work, and his interest in education persisted. Siobhan Lynham talks of his motivation in this regard. Bianconi
7: was fond of referring to himself as being uneducated. His schooling had certainly been cut short and it was probably the feeling that his education had been inadequate which made him particularly interested in the schooling of others. For instance, while he was mayor of Crown he accepted no salary. He gave the money to the poor schools of the town. He was one of the first supporters of the national schools, though he visualised them as non-denominational and he gave lavishly to the Christian brothers, to whom he left a large bequest. And one of his methods of repaying those who had befriended him in early life was to pay for the higher education of their children, and he had his own word of advice for them. Keep before the wheels, young fellow, or they will run over you. It was the Synod of Thurlus which decided in 1850 to establish a Catholic university, as opposed to the Queen's Colleges, which were called godless colleges. And Dr Leahy, the president of the College of Thurlus, was one of Bianconi's best friends, and from the outset, the wily Italian, as his parish priest had unwisely dubbed him, was interested in the venture. Writing to Sir Robert Peel on the subject later, he declared he had been convinced that such an institution was indispensable for the proper education of our Catholic youth. One of the finest Georgian houses in Dublin was 86 St Stephen's Green. It was built by the great Irish builder West for John Whaley of Ballinaclash County, Wicklow. It was stuffed with magnificent things. The auction of the pictures alone, for instance, took three days. And it ended with Bianconi, who was a member of the Catholic University Committee, buying the house in trust for the university.
0: Bianconi became a justice of the peace and, at 77 years of age, a deputy lieutenant for the county of Tipperary. He was immersed in politics on behalf of the Liberals and wrote on election matters to everyone imaginable, the viceroy, the archbishops, William Smith O'Brien, the Lord Chancellor and, of course, Daniel O'Connell. The treachery and fraud of politics, the broken hopes and promises, the bribes and threats, nothing could loosen his interest in electoral affairs. The more distant parts of his car empire were sold off to the local agents, usually on their terms, because he was a generous man to his faithful staff, despite the fact that he would argue with them like a fishwife over a discrepancy of a few pence. But he still, in his 80s, held the reins of most of the Bianconi service, and he could claim a unique record. My conveyances, many of them carrying very important mails, have been
1: travelling during all hours of the day and night often in lonely and unfrequented places. And during the long period of 42 years that my establishment is now in existence, the slightest injury has never been done by the people to my property or that entrusted to my care. And this fact gives me greater pleasure than any pride I might feel in reflecting upon the other rewards of my life's labor.
0: Early in 1875, Bianconi had a stroke. He was nearly 90, and his daughter Minnie, now married and living in Limerick, realised that the end was near and rushed to Longfield to be at his side.
5: He did not bid us goodbye, and I have no last word of tenderness to recall. The day before his death, my mother asked him if he would communicate, and he said quite plainly, with the blessing of God. Soon afterwards, she asked him if he suffered pain, and he said, No pain. He then dozed off, and from that torpor he never awoke. His face was calm and placid, and at last he passed away very quietly, and we just saw his head drop back onto James Sweetman's shoulder. It seems to me to be almost needless to say, with what sorrow the news of his death was received or what respect was paid to his dead body. While he lay dead, the house was thronged with people coming to pray beside him and to bid him a mournful farewell. His funeral was more than half a mile long. The people carried his coffin on their shoulders from the parish church to the little mortuary chapel and I never saw shown stronger feelings of sympathy and respect. Gentle and simple, all came to his funeral. Old friends of his that I hardly remembered, poor old Bayan men that I did not know even by sight, all came to pay their last tribute to their good old friend and say, God be merciful to him.
0: A hundred years ago, the death of Bianconi, the carman, was mourned in Tipperary.
7: Hear the shout that's ringing out In joyful tones along the highway Loud and clear the people cheer We'll soon be here, Tis coming our way First, First a rumbling
1: in, in the distance,
0: distance Then an echo through, through the trees Next a faint voice calling
7: Faster Carried on the east. Watch the grey dust rising as the coach swings round the bend to gather speed. Driver Driver straight straight and steady, steady, ever ready to to correct an erring erring steed. Hear the bugle blast resounding and the whiplash split the air as the thundering hoofs go pounding. On the roads to everywhere! See them pass each lad and lass in mirthful mood and voices blending. Laughter peals a-swearing, we tap out a tune that is unending. Up
3: the highways,
7: down down the byways, byways, cross the glens and through the fells. By the highlands and the lowlands, over moorland, hills and dells. Rippling reins and tossing manes and harness chains that bounce and jingle, for together straining leather, stride by stride their paces mingle. Now the last milestone is sighted, and the travellers chant in glee, back across the rolling meadows comes the cry, By by Ancony. Ancony!